All right. Well, it is 6.01, and I'm the type of dog that starts very close to on time, so we are going to begin, uh, provided I am recording, which I seem to be. Hopefully, we'll be recording this correctly. Let's check one more thing. Testing, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. All right, it seems to be working. So, welcome, everybody. We are doing uh, how to acquire a multi-million dollar real estate portfolio with just $3,000. Um, how many people were sold pretty hard by my email today? Pretty good, right? It is a good class, so we're definitely going to do it so. Um, it is based on this book, and actually, note to reward people that arrive on time, um, it's based on this book. How many people came to the Christmas party and got a copy of the book? Okay, how many people did not come to the Christmas party and do not have a copy of this book? Okay, cool. So, uh, I only brought one with me. You're a client. I will get you one. Just let me know, and I will get you a separate copy. So, this is the one that the class tonight is based on. Um, how many people were there that did not have a copy? We'll do a, a drawing. You have one, right? Yep. We're going to have you pick a random number, okay? okay. So, um, how many people? One. You're going to get one, too. You're a client. One, two, three, four, five, six. Is that it? Six people? Is that right? Six people? All right, so um, random number between 1 and 12. You got one? Write it down so that we know. Write it down in your book or something like that. And then we're going to start in the back, and you're going to guess the number. If you get the number exactly, you'll get it. Otherwise, we'll do closest, but not exceeding. What number do you pick? Nine. Is that right? Close. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Who else was in the running? No one else? What? Seven. Eight. Zero. That was it? Wow. Awesome. Eddie wins it. Sorry, guys. You. You're very, very welcome. All right, so who are you and... Uh, how much do you believe you'll need to acquire a multi-million dollar real estate rental portfolio in our current real estate market? The title slide says, how to acquire a multi-million dollar real estate portfolio with just three grand. So, I will ask the question again. Who are you and how much do you believe you'll need to acquire a multi-million dollar real estate rental portfolio in our current real estate market? And what else is holding you back from doing it? So, Ty, what do you think? Three thousand? <laughs> I did it with more than that, or I'm doing it with more than that. Right. It's kind of like you think that you need more than that, right? Right. So what do you think you need? Just really rough it. Um, ten grand. Ten grand. Yeah. Okay. So ten grand. And is there anything holding you back from doing it? Nope. Okay. Good. Welcome. Hey. Elijah. Okay. 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 Okay, cool. We'll take a look at that tonight. I have slides on that, so awesome. Thanks. Hello. Hello. Um, I'm a skeptic. Okay. You read the book? Yes. Okay, and you're still skeptical. I'm a little skeptical. All right, cool. We're going to slide on that, too. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I anticipate this stuff. I realize it's hard to believe. I mean, I put up a slide like that. It's like, oh, my gosh. Come on, James. Really, you're pulling my leg. So I guess what's really holding me back uh -huh. is Okay. Okay. So we'll cover some of that tonight. If you have any questions, let us know as we go. Awesome. Cool. I'm Joe. Um, I still believe it takes more than 3K to Fair enough. multi-million. Um, and what's holding me back after tonight's amazing class, I'd say nothing. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> we will address all your concerns tonight during class. So, 
Eddie, the winner of the book. Winner of the book, yeah. Eddie, I, I'm going to say 3,000. <laughs> <laughs> What's holding me back? Nothing as of yet. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Welcome. Hello. I'm doing amazing. How are you? Who are you and how much do you believe? <laughs> I'm going to go with 3,000. Okay. Three th First of all, who are you? James. James. Okay, cool. I'm James, too. So you believe 3,000. What else is holding you back from doing it? Nothing. Nothing. Okay, cool. Awesome. Welcome. Thank you. Hello. Hey, I'm Paul. Um, I think it may take uh, a little more unless you uh, do it step by step and get help running. I think you end up charging a little more. Okay. Like a little more like 50 grand? Uh, no, charge an extra 50 grand. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right, um, cool. Just get the first deal done, I guess. Get the ball rolling. Get it started. All right, cool. Awesome. Thanks. Welcome. Who are you? Um, I'm Brittany. Okay. <laughs> Okay, cool. Thanks. Welcome. Hello. Okay, cool. Not much, you mean? 50K. Okay. It's a lot easier to do a 50K, that's for sure. Awesome. Any other thing holding you back? The cash to do it? Okay, you can do it with 3K. Do you have 3K? Okay. Then you can do it. It could work. Hello. Um, I'm Patrick, and I believe that you can do it with three grand. I don't think that I can because I'm not going to know that anymore. But um, so what's holding you back is your lack of desire to move into houses. That's what I hear you say. Convincing the family to keep moving every year in case she wants to travel. Okay. So we just threw the wife under the bus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I just heard you say. <laughs> okay. Okay, awesome. And I think, I think honestly, yeah, you just get a little bit less up in this market. Even if you're not going to make a, a big break to do it with less than people would think. I think that's true, too. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, Cameron. Hi, I'm Cameron. Um, well, I would say I think you probably do it with 2000 but I know my last class did it with double. That is also uh, true. What's holding me back is increased. So I think it'll be, you know, having a job that allows for full employment by grad school. Yeah, the job one's tricky. Can we get loans for people in school? Parent co-signer. With a parent co-signer. So that's another wrinkle in there. That's also tricky. Okay, cool. Awesome. Thanks. Welcome. That's true. Okay. Awesome. Thanks. Welcome. Hello. Like the kids song. <laughs> you never listen to the kids song? Yeah, that's probably true. That's probably true. I agree. Nice. So you have some belief already. Okay. What if I told you it's actually really good for you financially? Would you be willing to do it then? Okay. We'll talk about that tonight, too. Cool. Thanks. Welcome. Hello. Hi, I'm Jeff. I am referring multi-million-dollar sales guy. I'm trying to make a little bit of I'm kidding. I, I have the resolution. Okay. But I'm not sure I believe 3,000. 
Okay. Okay, cool. I will attempt to do that tonight. Awesome. Hello? You spent way more than that already. <laughs> so it's hard to believe when you've already put more than that in. So, yeah. Yes, I, I definitely have heard that excuse before. Many times. Many times. So, thank you. Welcome. Okay. 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 I don't even know what they are. <laughs> I don't. I don't know what those are. So I guess I live in a bliss, a blissful world of. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Welcome. Hello. Hello. I'm Walter. I've been here for quite a while. Yes. Um, I'm ready to believe. Okay. You're ready to believe now. Okay. Cool. Very cool. Well, welcome. And you guys snuck in. Yeah. What's up, man? <laughs> How are you? Good. Who are you? I'm Jake. Um, I think it really depends on your situation. I, from what I know, I mean, you could get in it with no money, really. You can? You could start it. It might be a little longer process, but you do it. I think the way to do it with no money, it would be the exact same amount of time. Um, probably as long as you have, it depends, like, I mean, if you're a veteran. That's what I mean. Like you, yeah. I mean, so you, you basically replace the first down payment with a 0% down loan program. You do it same money, same amount of time. I guess technically you need like $500 to earn as money, so we'll call it $500. Probably don't even need to do that. Okay. We can make it work. Yeah. Um, so. Nothing really holding you back right now. Okay, cool. Thanks. Take well, time. <laughs> welcome. Hello. Hi. I'm already walking into the show. Okay, cool. Oh, you're here as a guest? Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, who are you? I'm Kim. I'm Lisa. Okay, cool. Uh, Oh, I see how this is working now. It's like, let's bring my spouse to the class, have someone else tell her about the plan I'm going to spring on her later tonight. Oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> we, we have plans all the time. Okay. Is that what happened to you? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. Okay. Oh, it's like both of them? It's like the row of them. There's like three in a row right here. What is that? Like Connect Four almost. That's really cool. Yeah, I guess so. It's like, oh, by the way, come to this real estate class. I think you'll find it very interesting. <laughs> Just look out for the spreadsheet when you get home. <laughs> I made this a couple days ago. I want to show it to you now that you see what we're doing there. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, do you think anything is holding you back? Um, I think probably just fear of the unknown. Yeah. I think fear is legit. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, welcome. Did I miss anybody? Courtney, did I get you? Courtney, who are you? How much do you believe you'll need to acquire a multi-million dollar real estate? Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Anything else holding you back from doing it? No. Okay, cool. Thank you. Welcome. So, upcoming classes. Uh, tonight is how to acquire a multi-million dollar real estate portfolio. I'm James Orr, by the way, in case you don't know. Uh, contract to close. That is going to be next Tuesday. That's the class on what happens once you go under contract to buy a property all the way through to closing. So what happens when you're under contract to buy? That will be the webinar on Tuesday night. Uh, the next Wednesday class, Brian is teaching. In fact, I am off for like a month. Brian's teaching classes for the month, which is really good for me. Uh, he is in Vegas tonight. That's why he's not here. 
Uh, millionaire Real Estate Investor, that's the blue book. Anyone read the blue book? Who's read the blue book, the Millionaire Real Estate Investor book by Gary Keller? No one's read that? Okay, it's worth reading. You guys should definitely read it. Uh, and if you don't read it, Brian's gonna teach it to you next week. So you don't have to necessarily read it, I guess, if you don't want to. Uh, seller's Property Disclosure Case Studies, that is gonna be next Tuesday. Uh, when you go under contract, the seller, usually, not always, uh, discloses a bunch of information about the property, and I'm gonna show you everything about seller's property disclosure and show you examples of what you might expect. Because for most people, they buy a house, they only see one. They only see the one they're buying a house on. You wanna know what's normal, what you can expect to see on that, and how to use that to your advantage. And so I'll show you a whole bunch of examples of that on Tuesday night. And then asset protection part one of two is gonna be Wednesday, April 5th. Part two of two is gonna be April 5 plus 7, 12. So it'll be on the 12th, Asset Protection Part 2. So Part 1 is the class, you guys, if you've attended Asset Protection before here, that's the same class. Part 2 now is going to be the forms. So I managed to persuade Brian to teach from the forms that you would use in order to do Asset Protection. So now the first class is all the theory and how to do it. And then Class 2 is the in practice, the actual forms you have for that class. And so that will be on the 12th, but the class that you're probably used to seeing is on the 5th. You should come to the fifth one before the 12th because if you don't understand this stuff, it's gonna be really confusing for the 12th and Brian has already told me, it's one of the reasons why this class is so long because he doesn't wanna split it up into two classes. He's already told me he's not reteaching this class on the 12th. So if you don't know, he's gonna tell you, go watch the video, become James's client or whatever you need to do in order to watch it because he's not reteaching it that night. It's just gonna be forms. And then finally on Tuesday, April 11th, negotiating win-win inspections for maximum benefit. Uh, once you have, are under contract to buy a property, you go through the inspection process, and we're going to talk about the negotiation process once you're under contract, and what that looks like, and how it all works, and then we'll talk about strategy for negotiating it to be win-win, but for you to get what you want out of the inspection. Any questions on upcoming classes? All right, cool. There are 158 slides tonight, just so you know. All right, so I'm going to have to go pretty fast. Uh, and you're going to notice I start off pretty slow and then I go a little bit faster toward the end. So we'll kind of go there. All right, that's the slide for tonight. Background. So when I have this class come about, did anyone come to the class where I talked about um, how to develop your down payment for Nomad? Anyone actually attend that class? You came to that class, Paul? Uh, maybe last year. So you'll remember because I handed out a color printout that had like a whole bunch of little houses on it in different colors. And so anyone remember getting that color handout? You came to that class? Okay, cool. So during that class, when I was preparing for that class, what I discovered was I was starting to ask myself, okay, how can we do the entire Nomad model, buying a house, moving in, living there for a year, and then converting it to a rental, how could we do that and minimize or come up with a down payment that we need in order to do it? And so I started thinking about, well, if you moved into the first one and you could get a nothing down loan or 1% down loan and do that, and then you, when you were moving out, when you were actually gonna convert it to your rental, let's say you actually found a lease option tenant buyer. Someone who wanted to buy the property from you, but needed to rent it for a year or two in order to be able to do that. And when you moved out, you got an option fee from them that you then use that option fee in order to get the next loan. And maybe I should have asked this ahead of time, but can we, Patrick is a lender. Patrick, can we use the option fee on a property we're moving out of as a down payment on the house we're moving into next? Okay. So it's a good thing that works, because that's the whole basis of the plan. So I'm glad I double-checked. So basically, you use the option fee from the house you're moving out of as the down payment for the house that you're moving into. So if you, have, if you need 5% down to do the next property, which 
You could do it with 5% down. The first two after the first one for loans two and three, you can do it with 3% down, right? So basically, you could get just a 3% down payment. For tonight's class, we're going to use 5% for all those. But if you get a 5% option fee, you can use that as a down payment to do the next property. And so you don't even need the down payment on the second property because you're getting it from the first house you moved out of. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. That's a big part of the class. So when I was going through this thing and I was thinking about how can I minimize how much you need and how you can go ahead and do the entire model without having to come up with a lot of extra down payment, I came up with this whole process. The process of using a lease option tenant buyer to give you the down payment for the next one. And then you do that until they start popping out, you get money in hand, and you can start buying not just 5% down properties where you live in, but you can also buy 20% down properties where you can keep them at straight rentals. And so that's what you're doing in this model. All right, so I talked about that. Ended up using the math by hand. So the first time I went and I kind of did this out, I didn't have software. I didn't write software to do the analysis. I actually did it by hand and I said, okay, we're gonna make about $40,000 or $50,000 every time we sell one of these after four years. So I'll do that and every time we do a rental property, I'm gonna need this percent down. And, and so I did it all out by hand mathematically and that was what the presentation for this class, the how to get your down payment was. But since then, I've written code. Who is the book? Eddie, hold up your book. So I've written, I wrote code to actually do the calculations for that book. And I did a presentation on it. And that's what we're going to go over tonight. Thank you, Eddie. So I'll show you the infographic. And actually had an error on it. I made an error when I was doing it by hand. And it was originally based on a property in Windsor in 2016. So there was a new construction neighborhood in Windsor, 2016. And the analysis we did was based on those properties. And it was based on buying them early, uh, renting them out, and getting those numbers to be able to buy them. Now, we realize that there are, there are properties over there that are no longer available. But there are similar enough properties that you can buy in Wellington, in Berthoud, in other parts of Windsor. So you, there you can continue to do this model, but the property we originally based it on is no longer available. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, so here are the assumptions I used. When you go buy the first property, when you go and you move into the first one, all you need is 1% down. So Patrick, can you get a loan with 1% down in our marketplace right now? Yeah. Okay. So there's, there are restrictions on it. It's not like for everybody. There's income restrictions, right? Um, yeah, there is an income component to it, but I haven't found, if you look it up on Playmark's website, it, it says you get the USDA, but none of the properties in Montreal are on. Have the restriction? I thought there was, if you made too much money, you could not do the 1% down one. Uh, the old, I had to go to like Steamboat in Rouse County or um, like Avon in the higher zip code. Okay. Find where the income cap falls. Okay. So you really can do it. It's really easy to do if you have a decent credit score? Absolutely. Okay. So you can go get, on your first property you buy, you can do it with 1% down. It, for the second and third one, you can do those with 3% down, although we're not doing those for the model. Tonight we're going to talk about using 5% down for the second one, the third one, and on until you get to 10, right? And then after 10, if you own 10 properties like that, then you need to convert to portfolio loans in order to do this beyond 10, okay? Um, so when I did the calculations originally, I was saying 1% down for the first ones, and then any subsequent properties were 5% down. I was rounding up the down payment negative cash flow. So on a $2,800 or $286,000 property, you needed a down payment of $2,860. I rounded that up to three grand when I did it by hand. So I wasn't about to go carry the numbers out to that, that level. When I did the math tonight, it's exact. 
Okay, it's down to the dollar. And any negative cash flow, I actually had that rounded as well. Um, I could do 5% down to 10 loans for owner-occupant, which we talked about. Now, when we're talking about other loans, can you go buy investment property with 5% down? Anyone? No. What's the minimum? Most of the time, it's 20, although 20 is actually an overlay, isn't it? The real rule is 15, and it's hard to find lenders that can do the 15. Is that correct? Right. So basically, if you find a lender who's willing to do it, you can do that, but most of the PMI companies are not doing it. So most of the time, you have to do 20% down for those till you get to four, and then after that, it's usually 25% down, correct? Unless you're going to do portfolio loans, okay? So the neighborhood we modeled, oh wait, so 20 if you're married and alternate between spouses. So 5% down up to 10 loans for owner-occupant, but if you're married, we're in my Paris, the bamboozled couples, okay? So what you could do is you could alternate. So you could go ahead, Connor, and you could actually go and do one loan, then you could do one loan, then you could do one loan, then you could do one loan, and you could actually end up with 10 each, correct? Yes, you have to do two, you have to keep the 10 separate. Agreed. So actually, so that's a really good question. We had never asked this before. So I, I re recently realized that you can actually have two people sign for the loan and only have one on title. And vice versa. You could have one person on, t uh, one, two people on the property and only one person on the loan. So if they were both on title, that would count as one of their spots? Okay. So with the one percent down, you can't own any other property because you already own first. So that was until the um, he couldn't do one percent on his second loan. Okay. Um, and then you get into this like, does that debt count against her? Um, you're running with some other clients that have multiple properties and they try to rip each other off the title. Yep. So oh. place to do it. It's easy. So basically, if you were going to do this, you would need to be on title and be on the loan. You would be on title and on the loan for a different one and then alternate back and forth, keeping them completely separate. And there's a kind of a, a uh, do you trust the spouse to not run away with your property sort of conversation that you guys should have outside of the classroom. But you should have that conversation with an attorney. Okay, so you gotta trust your spouse. Or if you're kind of alternating, that's easily divisible yeah. if you decide to get a divorce after 10. Oh, I don't know about this, Rob. Oh, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know. My wife's not letting me go anywhere, I don't think. So, okay, cool. So you can do 20 if you're married and alternate between spouses. The neighborhood we had modeled over in Windsor was a USDA-approved neighborhood. So technically, you really don't even need the 1% down. I'm going to blow your mind right now. So that $3,000 thing I said at the beginning doesn't even really apply. We could have done USDA over in Village East, couldn't we? And so it could have been a nothing down loan program where you were able to do this whole thing with nothing down. Make sense? Also, I will point out that, you don't know if Bertha is, do you? Is Bertha at USDA? Yeah. Okay, so the ones in Bertha and the ones in Wellington are both USDA approved areas as well. So you could even do nothing down in those too. So it really could be nothing down there. And there are 3% down programs for house two and three. Talked about that, so it doesn't really need to be five. I, when I did the original assumptions, I disregarded depreciation. Depreciation is the tax benefit, tax benefits you get from owning rental property. And so I ignored that when I did the uh, by hand model. The new model tonight includes it. And I'm assuming a tenant buyer buys after four years. So let's walk through this. So I go buy my first house, I move in, I put 1% down, I move in. 
I lived there for nine months. At the nine month point, I start marketing in order to find a tenant buyer. A tenant buyer is a tenant who's gonna move in, rent the property for a year, year and a half, two years, whatever it is, and then eventually they're gonna buy it from me. So it's pre-agreed upon upfront that they're gonna buy it from me. So I go to Ty and I say, Ty, looks like you wanna be a tenant buyer. I will allow you to rent my property for a year or two, and at the end of the two year period, you have to buy from me. And we're gonna agree upon a price upfront, okay? So, is it possible that I go and I find Ty, and Ty says, great, and he wants to close in year one. Is that possible? He could close in year one. So basically, it would take two years for me to buy the property and actually sell it. I move in for one year, Ty lives there for one year, the second year, and then at the end of that, he actually cashes me out and buys the property. Is that possible? So that would be a two-year one, okay? Let's say Ty goes in there, he lives there for a year, lives there for another year, and at the end of that one, he buys. Okay, that would have been a three-year plan. What happens if Ty goes in there, he lives there for a year, and he gets transferred away for work? He has to go back to LA. LA is Louisiana, by the way. Okay? <laughs> and he goes back to LA, right? Is that possible then that I could go find Kim who says to me, hey, I want to be a tenant buyer. I want to now move into your property, and I'm going to go live there for a year before I buy it. So maybe Ty moves in for a year, he moves out of the area, says, I don't need to buy it anymore, I'm going to walk away. Okay, great, Kim's going to do it. Now she has a year or two years in order to go buy it, and let's say she buys it, and it takes two years for her. One year for me living there, a year for Ty, and then two years for Kim, that's four years total. Okay? Or any variation thereof. Maybe it's Ty for a year, Connor McLeod, or whatever, Connor McGregor. <laughs> Anyone know who Connor McLeod is? Yeah. Anyone else besides Patrick? Oh, you do. You know too? Oh, okay, cool. Anyway, he's immortal in case you didn't know. Uh, so Connor actually, right, he's immortal. He's the Highlander. Yeah, Connor McLeod, the Clan McLeod. He's immortal. Um, so Connor moves in for a year, and then Kim moves in for a year, and then eventually she buys the property. Is it possible I could go through three different people and have that work? Totally. So what we're saying is, my assumption is, it's going to take us one year to live there, and then three years of either Ty doing the whole thing, or split up between any number of tenant buyers before they actually cash me out of the property. Is it possible, on average, it takes me five years to do one? Sure. Is it possible it takes six years to do one? What about seven? Yeah, it's possible one could go extremely long. But there could be other ones that go in a year. So you got to take that into account. So on average, we said it's going to take four. I assumed when I did the math by hand, the profit was not increasing, although it does, mathematically. So when I did it originally, I did not assume the profit increased. I assumed that there was a $45,000 profit on Nomad properties. I move in, I live there, Ty buys it from me a year or two or three later, and at the difference between what I paid the debt down and what the property appreciated was $45,000. That's what the profit was. Does that seem reasonable? This is, by the way, anytime during the presentation, if you wanna kinda of reach into your pocket and throw up the yellow BS flag, feel free. <laughs> so I wanna handle your objections as they come up. Jeff. 3%, and I'm gonna go through the assumptions, but let's assume it's a $300,000 property, which is approximate, and we're saying the property value goes up 3% a year. Well, 3% on $300,000 property is 9K a year. If it takes four years, there's $36,000 right there, plus you have debt pay down, okay? So between those two things alone, you should see 45. And that's actually on 300. 10 years from now, when we're still doing the model, it's still 45. That's what I mean by the profit didn't increase, even though in reality it does, okay? And tonight I'm going to do the real math, but these were my assumptions originally. And then 100K profit from 20% down, it includes getting the 20% down payment back. So think about it, $300,000 property, what's 20% down? 60K. So I said I made 45K profit, 
plus 60K back. So 100K is actually conservative, right? So I should make about the same amount of profit on that one. Make sense? Okay. More assumptions. Assuming you wait for the tenant buyer with a 5% option fee when exiting your Nomad property. So here's a scenario. I move in in year one, I put 1% down. I live there for a year. Once I start getting close to the year time frame, nine months or so, I start marketing to try to find Ty. So I don't know him yet, right? So if I don't find Ty by the time it's a year, I'm not moving out, I'm continuing to wait. I'm gonna market until I find Ty and a very specific type of Ty. Ty who has 5% down. If he doesn't have 5% down, I say to Ty, I'm sorry Ty, in this particular case, I cannot offer you this property on a lease option. I need 5% down in order to be able to do it. Otherwise, I can't do it, it doesn't work for me. Okay, so I wait for someone with 5% down to do that. Is it unusual to find someone who has 5% down to do a lease option? What do you think? Yes, no? Patrick, you see a lot of people coming to you all day long looking to borrow money. Are there a lot of people out there that have $15,000 down who can't qualify for a loan? And they would be willing to do a lease option. Is it, is it like really rare? Is it like one a month? Is it like one a week? Okay. There are specific dates, right? If you have a, a bankruptcy, you might have to wait until May of 2018. That doesn't mean that they don't qualify or that they couldn't get a loan today if they didn't. It just means they can't get a loan for 18 months. Is $15,000 $15, a lot of money for someone coming to buy a house? Do most, do most of your borrowers have more than $15,000 for down payment? Okay. Okay, so 3% down is at a minimum. What's the FHA down payment? Three and a half. So most people, if they're gonna have some credit challenges, are probably going to FHA, because it's one of the easiest loans to qualify for, right? So they're probably gonna need at least three and a half percent to do that. So it seems relatively reasonable to be able to find a tenant buyer that has 5% down. Is it gonna be that every person you call is gonna have 5% down? Heck no. In my experience, it's more like one out of 10. One out of 15. So you have to take a bunch and go through it. Now, one thing I do want to say about this model. This model, Nomad in general, is actually a relatively easy model. You move in, you live there for a year, you convert it to a rental. It's really not that hard. This version of Nomad, where you're able to do it with basically one $3,000 down payment, you're trading your own labor and hard work and effort, your hustle, in order to get it done. Because there's a lot more work involved in this model than there is in traditional, just buy the house, convert it to a rental, and keep the rentals long term. You gotta go find tenant buyers, you have to sell the properties, you have to go replace the properties you're selling off. There's more effort and labor and hustle involved. Does that make sense to everybody? So you're trading this effort for less down payment. Okay. All right, so talk about this. So I gotta wait for Ty, a special version of Ty with 5% down. If I don't find 5% down, I wait, I do not do anything. I just wait until I find somebody. I keep marketing, keep looking for them. Why do we require 5%? Why don't I say, you know, Ty, you've got five grand coming from your tax return. Why don't we just use the 5K? Why do I make sure that he has 15 down or whatever the number is? 
I need it for the next property for the down payment. If I don't have his 5% down, guess what? I don't have enough for the down payment unless I have more than the $3,000 I started with. So how many people were asking, I'll get to your question, remind me. So how many people said it's easier if you have more than three? Raise your hands if you said that. You're right, because now I don't need to wait for Ty with 5%. I can, I can choose if Ty is really qualified otherwise and all he has is 10, I can say I will accept Ty because I've got $5,000 to make up the difference on this one. Does that make sense? So it's totally easier to do this. But if I'm willing to, I can wait for Ty to come in with 5% down. Jeff. That's true. Oh yeah, I'm gonna make that assumption in a minute. I think it's, yeah, there's a slide where I say all this, basically in my model, everything happens on January 1st, <laughs> right? Which doesn't happen, it's gonna get sloppy. But you could definitely find someone with 6% down that makes up that slack. Or you could go find a property where the numbers are a little bit better than this. Because in my opinion, this, this is like a new house. These are pushing the numbers. If you go and you pick a property in G-Town that has a better price to rent ratio, it works better. It works better than these numbers. This is like pushing the envelope of sort of where you want to go price range for most people and the rent to price ratio. But you also have new construction and there's some benefits to doing that. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> is it unreasonable to ask for 5%? We talked about that. FHA, FHA loan, which is what a lot of people with poor credit are going to get, is 3.5%. We're assuming tenant buyer for 20% down purchases also had an option fee for 3%. In the other model I did, I assumed it was a 3% option fee. I will tell you for tonight, after kind of the hard-coded example, I changed it to five for both. Makes it mathematically easier. Uh, I rounded up to the nearest 1K. I changed this for a new model in 5% tonight. Assuming tenant buyer properties, when putting 20% down, have break-even cash flow. So when I did the model by hand, I said no, no positive cash flow for 20% down properties. I assume that you just had break-even cash flow. I did say you had negative cash flow for the 5% down ones. I'll show you that. So, Patrick, were the rules for lending exactly the same a decade ago as they are today? No. Are the rules next year automatically going to be the same as this year? So is it possible that we make this very elaborate plan and the stuff I tell you tonight ends up changing next year? Is that possible? Sure. So I have no control over what Patrick's lenders decide to do, but it's possible they could come and say, no more of this 1% down loan program, or no more of this 5% down loan program, I need you to come up with 10% down. Or they may say, you know, you have to live in the property for two years now. Or they may say, you can only have six loans in your name now. They could change any of these rules. Now, a lot of these rules have been in place for a while, and we don't, we don't have anything that says, oh, they're definitely changing this rule next year, do we? No, so all the rules we're talking about tonight, there's nothing immediately on the horizon that says they're gonna change, but realize they can change. Everyone with me? Okay. So this is the handout. If you had come to the class, you got a copy of this thing. Yeah, everyone's zo like zooming in trying to read this, right? You don't need to read it. We're gonna skip this one tonight. But this was the one I did by hand. And if you wanna go see like the explanation of this, go watch the how to come up with a down payment or whatever the name of that class was that I taught. Because I go through this line by line, I walk people through what each of the numbers are and everything else. And I gave people a handout when they did it. So you can go see that, okay? We're not covering that tonight, but that was the old math by hand thing, which was crazy. 
All right, so here are the new modeling assumptions. Similar properties currently for sale in Berthet and Wellington. So I was basing the original one off of something in Windsor. There are properties that are very similar in Berthet and Wellington. I will tell you the numbers are a little bit worse than what we're seeing on here. The prices have gone up, which we expect in our marketplace, and the rents have not gone up as, as much as the property values have gone up. Plus, I think interest rates have risen a little bit since last year. So we're seeing a hit in multiple fronts. It's what we talked about, how many people came to the stats class where I told you about how it's harder and harder to find positive cash flow properties in our market, right? Property values are going up, rents are going up, but not quite as much, and interest rates are going up, which make our monthly payment higher. So it's harder and harder to find positive cash flow properties in Northern Colorado, okay? We could pick less expensive properties or pick properties with slightly better rent to price ratios. And, and by the way, it's not price alone. It's not let's find cheaper properties because we could go and go up in value. We could do $500,000 houses with this. Really what it comes down to is a ratio of price to rent or rent to price. We want ones with better economics, one where you could get more rent for the same dollar value you spend. So this property, in my opinion, is probably in the top five to 10% of properties that are available in our marketplace. And that's really where we wanna be with Nomad Properties. We're not just buying any old property in the MLS, we're being, what is it, picky? We're kind of saying, I wanna pick good properties, and so we're eliminating 90% of the crap, and we're only looking at the top 10%, and then we're picking properties from there. Now, are you willing, because you gotta live in these properties and move in for a year, are you willing to sometimes trade economic factors, like the ratio of price to rent, in exchange for granite countertops, hardwood floors, school district, location of property for commute to work? Are you willing to make those trade-offs where it has worse numbers than what we're showing up here, but it has better characteristics for you to live in? Sometimes are we doing that? Yeah, for nomad stuff. If you were just buying it as an investment, you might not make that trade-off. So the amount you need up front is sensitive to rent you can collect on the property. I will tell you, if you change the rent numbers on my model, it pretty dramatically impacts everything on the property. If you go from 1850 in rent to 1800, that's a pretty significant impact overall because it gets compounded over a very long period of time over multiple properties. Uh, in fact, Brendan and I were doing some math once where we determined the sensitivity is greatest for rent and not nearly as sensitive for price. Didn't we determine that? Like you could afford to pay $10,000 more for a property, it doesn't affect things nearly as much as if kind of a sensitivity to rent, where if you change rent by a little bit, it actually has a bigger impact. It's, just, it's counterintuitive in some ways. Okay. The less rent you can collect, the more you'll need to cover negative cash flow. So where are the people that said having more money makes this easier? You're right. If you have more money, you can pick a property that has more negative cash flow because you can afford to feed it. So let's walk through the assumptions. So this is based on a real entry-level new construction property available now in our local market, although it's not technically now. Last time it was now in Windsor, now it's sort of now in Wellington, and the numbers are not exactly the same. I think the sale price of the one in Wellington is like 288 instead of 286, okay? The appreciation rate, we're assuming 3% growth rate. Fort Collins has seen 4% over a long period of time. Loveland has seen 3%. Rents, initial rent is $18.25 a month. Does anyone have a problem with $18.25 a month on a $285,000 property in Windsor or now in Wellington in Berthet? Anyone think that's high or low? If you have objections, let's hear them now. You think it should be higher? I think that, that number's high. You think that's high? 
by how much? By about 150 bucks. For what city? Uh, Berthoud. I have data points that suggest otherwise for Berthoud. But, I mean, you could be right. So let me ask you this question. Let's just kind of deal with this now. So Ty, who wants to buy the property from me, not just rent it, I tell him, hey, listen, Ty, the rent is $1,700 a month. But you want to buy from me. And if you were going to buy from me, you would need to be able to make this payment. Because it's actually going to be more than probably what you're paying in rent. Taxes, insurance, PMI type thing, right? Mm -hmm. So Ty, I want to collect from you $1,825 a month for rent. Is he going to balk at that because he has a chance to buy the property? Probably not. Probably not. So is it possible to get slightly above market rent if we're doing a lease option on a property instead of just a straight rental? So is it possible you think we can get 1825 on this property then? Yes. Okay. And I think you can. It's a year old house. It's a year old house. Agreed. I totally agree with that too. Yep. Okay. Apparently, there's something really important I was going to write here. I don't remember what it was though, but it started with R. So, if anyone knows, let me know about that. All right. So, 1825, and we're also assuming rent is going up at 3% a year. How many people think that rent and appreciation go up at about the same rate? Anyone disagree with me? You don't think they do? They do. They do, though, over a very long period of time. We are seeing an anomaly in our marketplace where property prices are going up so fast that rents are not keeping up. But eventually, it reverses and it slows down. I looked at charts, and actually, I think you were at this one where we went over appreciation. And I showed you a chart during appreciation where I showed you house prices to rent values and that they were jumping up and over the line, but they were keeping pace with the line itself for house prices. And so over a very long period of time, they do. I agree with you that in the short term, we can see things where Rents are lagging behind home prices. Home prices went up like 10% last year, but rents only went up three. Does that make sense? So over a long period of time, we totally see that. And so I've used the same assumption because we're doing this model over, I think tonight I'm gonna do 22 years. Okay, so over a 22 year period, it's gonna be about that. Okay, seasonality to rent. Do you think if I tried to rent this for 1825 in January, that I'm gonna get 1825? Probably not. What if I tried to rent it in May or June? Some seasonality, right? And so I'll probably be able to do that. Uh, if you want to hear, I did like two hours on why these numbers are good numbers to use under, on this class. So if you want to go watch it, you can go watch it there. Okay? Any questions on home price, rent, and appreciation rates for both? Sweet. Okay, cool. Closing costs and mortgage. So seller concessions baked into that price it's like a $5,000 seller concession from the builder. So we use that in order to cover closing costs. Patrick, is $5,000 enough to cover most closing costs on a property of this nature? Is it enough for all of it? Okay. So basically, we can cover all of the closing costs for doing the loan with a 2% seller concession, so we don't have to come out of pocket for anything there. Down payment percentage. We've been talking about this all night. We're using 5%. Loan interest rate. What's the interest rate for today, Patrick? Approximately. What's that? Four and an eighth, four and a quarter, so like 4.125 or 4.25. So is 4.5 a conservative number to use? Okay, so 4.5 is a conservative number we're using for that. Any questions on closing costs and mortgage interest rate? Okay. 
HOA, taxes, and insurance. The HOA in this particular case, in Village East, there was no HOA, but there were higher metro taxes. And so what I did is I did HOA at zero with a 3% appreciation, which 3% of nothing is nothing. And then 0.5% insurance, where's insurance, Brian? Brian, $286,000 property, insurance is gonna be about 1,500 a year, is that reasonable? Conservative. Conservative, so 0.5% new build. Yep, so 0.5% of the value of the property is what we're estimating for insurance, okay? So I think that's a conservative number to use, and that's what we're using here. 0.5% of the value of the property. So as the property value goes up, the insurance also goes up, okay? Property tax rate. So normally, I think when, I looked at Wellington earlier today, it was like 0.65 is what we're seeing for the ratio of the price of the property that it sells for and the taxes we're getting on it. Because this one's in a metro taxing district, I use 0.75, which is a little bit higher than I would normally use. So we're saying that on a $286,000 property, that's probably looking like, I don't know, $2,100, $2,100 a year. Does that seem reasonable for people for taxes on a property? Okay, so that's what we're using for that. Now, in the one in Wellington, instead of having the higher tax rate, it actually has a $250 a year HOA. Okay, so imagine the $2,100 in taxes, you're now paying $1,700, but you really are paying $250 for the HOA, which since they're both growing at that same 3% rate, it's like a wash. Is everyone follow? Anyone have a problem with what I just did? Okay. For the HOA? It is. It is what the HOA is. I looked in the MLS. So it's not like I made it up and I'm guessing. It's an actual number. No, no, all it is is like common area maintenance. Yeah, it's like, you know, keeping the sign clean into the neighborhood. That's basically what that is. Okay? All right, continuing on. Did I skip a slide? All right, so maintenance reserve. So what we do is we take the amount of rent we collect and we multiply it by whatever percentage we have here and we set that money aside for maintenance on the property. So we're saying 12% we're setting aside of the rent coming in, the gross rent coming in for maintenance. I will tell you on a new construction property, that's really high which is what we're talking about modeling here. However, on a regular property, that's actually probably a good number to use, okay? So we've used 12%, I think that's conservative in this case. And then we're saying property management, sorry, but property management is actually going to be self-managed in this case. If you were gonna hire property management and there's gonna be cash flow later to do it, not early on, then you would go hire property management and do that, Eddie, as an example, okay? So you go do that. But up front, we're actually saying, we're keeping that cash, we're hustling to do it, make the numbers work. Other assumptions. These are assumptions I use in other presentations. For example, I, I model, if you're using houses to pay for college, we start with a yearly college cost. Oh, by the way, there's a really good article just in USA Today a couple days ago about the rising cost of college. Now, colleges have been increasing at like a rate of 8% per year. Anyone else see that article? Some ridiculous number. So $40,000 per year is what we're estimating for college. I'm not using that tonight. Appreciation rate for college, uh, 5%. Stock market rate, 10%. We're not using that. Income rate, I am using this. Income tax rate. So there's an argument we have in class whenever I teach Nomad. And I'm, it's unfortunate Brian's not here tonight to have the argument continued. But basically, what we use for income tax is we try to say this is the effective tax rate that you're getting on a property. 20%. So 20% of the income on the property, and we're actually going to multiply the depreciation by the income tax rate in order to find out how much of the... Uh, how much of the income we have that we can actually not pay taxes on so it improves cash flow on a property, okay? So that's this 
tax rate number there. Now, what Brian argues is, in order to get a 20% effective tax rate, you need to be making like $170,000 a year, something ridiculous like that. I thought about this more since our last conversation. And really, if you're actually making, let's say $100,000 a year to make it easier, you're making $100,000 a year and you depreciate $9,000, the $9,000 is at the highest tax rate, right? Because you're actually saving the top end. You're going from 100 to 92. And so really your savings is at whatever the highest tax rate you're at, not necessarily the effective tax rate. Am I thinking about that right? So, Brian loses again. <laughs> there we go. So basically, I, don't, I think my number is actually safer than I originally thought. I used to tell him, I think it's actually a little high. I don't think, of all the conservative numbers I use, this is the one I could be challenged on most, but now, after I think about it, I don't actually think it is challengeable. I think that that's actually the highest rate you are, you're getting discounted on. Okay. Inflation rate, we're not using that tonight, but I can make numbers and show you what the inflation is, and this is just which uh, image I show on there. Oh, depreciation recapture. So when I do the, the math on there, is it getting warm in here? A little warm? Maybe open the door for a few minutes. So basically, the depreciation recapture, when you sell a property, you have to pay back, or pay a tax, or some way of describing it, but basically all the depreciation you took, you need to pay 25% of it back to the government when you sell a property. And so I do take that into account in our math. Okay? Um, any other questions? Anything on this? Okay, cool. So lease option exit, these are additional assumptions. So I'm saying we're starting off with three grand in cash. If you're starting off with 50, you can put this in the calculator and it can actually redo the model and say, you have enough to buy a property earlier than year five, okay? Years until lease option closes, we're assuming four years, I already talked to you about that. Option fee percentage, it's 5%, so we're getting tied to come in with 5% as an option fee that we can then use for down payment. Long-term cap gains rate, 15%, Denise? Does that seem reasonable? 15% long-term cap gains rate, so we're using that, we're gonna actually pay taxes on any of the profits we have coming out, to make sure we're talking about real dollars we can spend, not like you get 60 and you try to spend 60, it's you get 60, you pay your cap gains, you pay back depreciation, and then you can use that money in order to do your down payment on your next property. And then I'm showing you what year we're showing, but in this case, we're not doing that. Okay, so where did you ask me about all the stuff? This is January 1st, that's the important note, okay. So in order to kind of figure out this model, I need to come up with a consistent way of dealing with each year. And so this is kind of my order of operations. So each year on January 1st, we sell any houses that we had lease options on. We assume that at the very beginning of the year, the lease option tenant buyer closes out the property on January 1st and buys it from us, okay? Just so that I can do the, the model. The next thing that happens is we find any tenant buyers on any previous property that we had. So the house that I'm moving out of, we get a tenant buyer to give us that option fee so I can put it in the bank account and use that money for the down payment for the next house, okay? We buy the Nomad property, so if we have enough to buy a Nomad property with 5% down, we do that at this point. And then if we have enough for 20% down properties, we buy 20% down properties. And if we don't have enough, we don't buy them, okay? We collect the lease option fees on any 20% down properties we bought. So if we bought a 20% down property, we would buy the property, and then we would put our tenant buyer in there, and we would collect an option fee from them. And then after that, we collect rents on any properties that are rented, because we're starting on January 1st, we're getting rent for the rest of the year at any properties that we own. The next January, we start this whole thing over again. Now, in reality, is this all happening on January 1st? Not a chance. Not a chance at all. And so expect some slop. Expect some flexibility in dates and deadlines here. And you may be 
selling your property on one day and waiting 30 days for the other and so on. Yeah. Yeah, so on that one, you actually tell your tenant buyer that you need to find a replacement property before they can do it. But if you're doing new construction, you have some planning that you can do. And in a normal market, it shouldn't be as big of a deal. In our crazy market, yeah, it's probably a big deal. Okay? But they'll be flexible on the other end to a reasonable degree. And if they don't, I can't do it until I find another property. If you need to leave, we'll do it, and I'll just find another person. So. Um, okay, another Probably, I'd have to think that one through. You definitely can have roommates that are paying rent, and that's like a huge score. But as far as having a lease option tenant buyer for year one, probably. See any problem with that? Something that doesn't quite seem right about that, but I don't know what off, off the top of my head. It's, it's unusual. I've never heard it asked before. Well, they're only renting a certain. Their rent is board, considered border rent, right? Because it's not a full lease for the full property. So they're just renting a room from you, lease optioning their total property. I haven't seen any underwriter that's done that. I'm not an underwriter, so I would argue against them. I just tell them that worst case scenario, they tell you that that's an inducement or that's a gift. Like you're able to front the money and get it later? Well, then I would just rent them. I, you know, so I, I would just have a border, a border rent uh, agreement, right? Rent one room. And then at the end of the year, just convert it to a true lease option. I don't think there's a benefit to having them pay it to you ahead of time while you're still at the property. Well, the benefit is it's more security. But we can talk about that later. It's a little nuanced thing. To definitely come talk to me. We can sit down and figure I that one out. get weird about the source yeah. of funds and like, oh, you're oh. So this is, this is actually a great point. I don't know if I do have a bullet point here, so I want to bring it up while I'm thinking about it. So before you go and run any plan that you have, you need to go talk to your lender. And you need to say to your lender, okay, so here's what I'm thinking about doing. And it really helps if you have a lender that understands Nomad. Because like 90% of the people you go to and you tell me you want to do this, they're like, why would you ever want to do that? You're crazy. Just sell the property. <laughs> right? So you really need a lender that understands. And there's very few people that understand it. So go talk to Patrick and say, okay, Patrick, I want to do the Nomad model. I'm thinking about doing a lease option tenant buyer from here. What paperwork and documentation do you need in order for me to be able to do this correctly so that I can use it and I don't get myself in trouble where I go under contract on a property and then I find out I can't use that source of funds? Better to do it upfront in advance to make sure you have everything lined up correctly. Right? Okay. So we'll talk about this. Important note, reality, you're not doing this all in January 1. All right, so year one, <clears throat> halfway through. Okay, good. We're good on time, I think. All right, so at the beginning of the year, we actually show you the amount you have in your bank account. $3,000 in your bank, 1% down that you need in order to do this is $2,860. So you have enough in order to buy a 1% down property starting in year one. So year one, here's the order of operations. Sell any houses. Do we own any houses in year one? No, we haven't bought anything yet. Find a new tenant buyer in the previous Nomad property. Do we have a Nomad property to find a tenant buyer for? No, we do not. No previous Nomad property. Buy Nomad property, then buy 20% down properties. 
We're buying our first Nomad property. We're going to look at this one on the next slide. We do not have enough to buy 20% down homes. Nothing to buy. Collect lease option fees on new 20% down. No new 20% down. No new lease option fees to collect. Collect rents on properties that are rented. We're buying our first property and moving in. Do we have rent? No, you're living there. Now, if you have roommates, you do, but I did not model that. So basically, you're moving into the property. No rent in year one. Okay, so value of homes in year one. The property value is $286,000 when you buy it. You have $3,000 in your bank. 1% down payment for our first Nomad home would be $2,860. This property would also qualify for USDA, which is nothing down, which we're not talking about, but we're modeling using one. Additional Nomad properties down the road would be 5% down, not the one. Closing costs are covered by seller concessions. Any problems with me buying a house? No. You need to negotiate the seller concessions and then negotiate an amount can actually either cover them or not cover them. So you should plan on a year. There may be some really unusual exceptions where you could do it shorter period of time, but I would plan on a year for every single one. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. Yeah, 20% down, you could do it more frequently. But for the ones you move into, the thing you sign at closing says, I will stay in this property for a year as my owner-occupant residence. So with our 20% down, then I can... You could buy it and not move in. It doesn't matter. You could buy it as an investment property, though. Right? So you can pay a higher interest rate, but it would be classified as an investment property. Yep. And there's really rare situations where this would be okay. Like, you know, like you're relocating to a job, you're married, you have twins, something that... Yeah, more than 100 miles. Yeah, not north, south, north Fort Collins and south Fort Collins. Really closely. Yep. Okay. So there's I occasionally have people come to these nomad classes and they're like, okay, James explained this great model. He's got all this detail and stuff like that. I'm going to improve on it. I'm going to figure out a way to kind of do this and do six month periods of time and I'm going to commit loan fraud. Do not do it. The model is amazing enough without you trying to screw with the model. Don't try to improve on what I did. Okay. Um, don't commit loan fraud. Brian will tell you stories about a tenant he had that committed loan fraud and went to prison. So don't do it. It's no joke. It's serious stuff. Okay. So minimum gross monthly income in year one. This is the amount of money you need in order to buy the $286,000 property. I assume a 45% debt to income ratio. Is that what's required for this loan? 45 for the 5% though? Okay. So this is about what you need in income in order to qualify for the loan. It assumes you have absolutely zero other debt. Where are my student loan people? I'm sorry for you, okay? Because that really hurts you, unfortunately, okay? But you need to have this with no other debt, no car payment, no credit card payments, nothing else like that in order to get this number. If you have additional debt, you need to make $222.22 more for every $100 that you want to borrow for your loan, okay? So if you have a you know, car payment that's $600, then you need six times 222 or about $1,300 more per month in order to cover a $600 a month car payment. That's crazy. So don't do it. Try to keep your debt minimized, except for houses, when you're doing Nomad. Right? Did I say everything correctly? Okay, good.
So really, in order to do this monthly for your household, it's two of you, household $3,850 a month, gross income, assuming no other debt. Does that make sense? Does that seem in the ballpark? Do you want my math right? Okay, good. Appreciation. So you bought a $286,000 house. It goes up 3%. It went up $8,580 in year one. That's a 300% return on your investment. You go in, you put a property, you buy it 1% down. You now made $8,580 just in appreciation year one. You just made a 300% return on your money. It's pretty good. Paying down the loan in year one. You paid down $4,568 on your single loan in year one by doing this model. So that's 160% return on your $2,860 that you put into the property. This, by the way, paying down debt, is as close to a guaranteed return as you can get without me saying the words guaranteed return, which I hate to say. Because there's really nothing in life that's guaranteed. But if you make your mortgage payments, you actually pay off $4,568 in year one. As long as you make that payment, that is what you actually gained. So it's as close to guaranteed as you can get. If you make the payment, you get that return. There's no depreciation or cash flow in year one. Why don't we have depreciation or cash flow? Yeah. We're living in the property. Why, not? Why don't we get depreciation, though? Can't depreciate non-rental income property. Yeah. If you have roommates, you can do partial. That's correct. But we're not assuming that in this case. We're not assuming we rented out. But you're right. You can. You can get depreciation in that case. And rent and cash flow. OK. So any other questions on this? I think if you decide to get roommates, there you go. You might actually get income and could depreciate part of the property. See the Young Professional Nomad for details on that model of renting it. Yeah? Are you saying I'm saying you need to make more money in order to have the same qualification that we just put up there. Okay. So if you have you know, $300 a month in student loan, now you need to make $700 more per month in order to cover the $300 in student loans. You can't qualify for a $386,000 or $286,000 property. You need to look at cheaper stuff. Make sense? So this is assuming you're buying a $286,000 property. That $3,850 is what you need to make assuming you have no other debt. If you have other debt, you need to make more in order to cover it. Or buy a cheaper property. Okay? All right, so at the end of the year, you have $140 in your bank account. Okay? I'm assuming you're just making your mortgage payment, you're living there, you're paying that off. We have 140 in your bank at the end of the year. By the way, does this all the stuff I just showed you seem really, really simple? It's simple because I'm about to add on it and go crazy, freaky town, complex with all the math. Okay? So I'm taking my time, going slow, and then I'm going to start throwing like nine numbers at a time for you. Okay? All right, so here's the gra infographic summary. In year one, owner-occupant, one nomad property you bought, you have no tenant buyers. Super simple. All right, year two, second nomad, and we're going to convert the first one to a rental. Let's follow along. Do we have any houses that we have a lease option tenant buyer in that's going to buy it? No, nothing to sell. We find a new tenant buyer on the previous nomad. I go find Ty. I spend two months, three months, whatever it takes in order to go find Ty. Ty has 5% option fee. I'm going to use that to buy my next house. I find him. I put him in the property as a tenant buyer right there. Buy the nomad property, then buy 20% down. So now I have enough from Ty's option fee to buy my next property at 5% down. I do not have enough to buy any 20% down properties. He only gave me 5%, not 25. I collect any option fees on the 20% down properties. I didn't buy one, so there's nothing to collect. 
I collect rents on the property that Ty is in. So I'm going to start collecting rents from Ty. Does everyone follow along? Anyone lost? Because if you're lost here, the rest of the night's waste. You might as well go home. Okay. Seriously, you guys need to understand where we are. Anyone lost? All right, cool. All right, so last year we started the, started the year with $3,000. We now started this year too with 140. I own one 1% down home, no 5% down homes, and no 20% down homes at the beginning of the year. I have a total of one home. I know this sounds really simple, but these are gonna get freaky hard really fast, okay? Value of homes in year two. So now the homes are worth 294, 580 when they used to be worth 286. To be clear, these are the exact same homes. We're not buying nicer homes, we're buying the same home in the same neighborhood that actually got a little bit more expensive from appreciation. So I'm not going and buying nicer homes every year. I'm buying basically the same home in the same neighborhood, in theory, for a little bit more. Same type of neighborhood. Although we can get that done if it really comes down to it. But yes, it's not the house right across the street. What's that? I, you know something? So I've had two people do this. It is not an easy move. It's actually harder to move across the street than it is to move across town because you think it's easier to carry your stuff out <laughs> across the street, but you end up carrying it like twice the distance that you do to a truck and then from a truck back inside the house. It's really bizarre. It's not easier to move across the street. Because <laughs> then you think, oh, I can, I can take my time. I'll just move this one room. Oh, it's, I'm tired. Let me go sleep. Which house am I sleeping in? All right, so. So the property values went up basically 3%, 286 to 294 and some change. They're just a little bit more expensive, but they're the same type of house. A, a find a new tenant buyer in previous nomads. So we're finding tie. 5% option fee of 294, 580 is 14,729, not 5% of their purchase price. Because the purchase price tie is gonna get is not the price of the property I'm buying. We're gonna give him a price based on when he buys, okay? So kind of an interesting thing, if he needs 3.5% down, it might be really close to 3.5% is what he needs. We just tell him this dollar amount. We need 15K from you, okay? Uh, you'll be using this as your down payment on your next Nomad property, so you'll either collect it before you buy the next one, talk to your lender about creating the proper, proper paper trail, or have more than $3,000 where you can spot the 15,000 you need to buy it, and then when he moves in, you get that back and you reimburse yourself. So remember the people that said it's easier to do if you have more money? Absolutely right. I don't have to get it from him before he moves in. I can wait until we're halfway through closing or whatever it is, because I have enough money to make up that down payment for the next one, and, and then I can just reimburse myself from that money that, he's getting, that I'm getting from Ty. Does that make sense? Okay. You need to hold out to find a tenant buyer with this amount. I think I've emphasized that enough. Start marketing 90 days prior, and we have two classes on marketing for tenants and Nomad with Lease Option Exit Overview where we talk about how to find those. Okay. So appreciation year two. Now we've got two houses. The house we bought in year one and the house we bought in year two, they both went up $8,837 in that year for a total appreciation amount of 17 grand and change. Does everyone follow? All I did is add the two together and find out how much total appreciation we had on the properties. Two houses. This shows you visually, this was appreciation year one this is appreciation year two on the two houses we own. Seems really simple now, it's gonna get complicated. This is how much debt we paid down. $4,515 on the new house, $4,778 on the house we bought last year for a total debt pay down that year of $9,292. Everyone follow? Okay. 
This was last year's debt pay down. This is the debt pay down for this year for two houses. By the way, does debt pay down increase over time? Are you paying down more in a house you own in year two than you bought in year one? Yes, you are. It increases each year. All right, cash flow in year, year two. We put 1% down. If we had put 20% down on the property we bought, we would have had positive cash flow. Okay? We only put 1% down. We do not have positive cash flow. Really what you did, in my mind, is you said, hey, listen, instead of me putting $60,000 down as a down payment, I'm going to put $3,000 down as a down payment, and I'm going to make monthly payments over time to make up what I didn't put down originally. Okay? And so the amount you're actually putting down, the amount you're paying yearly is negative $1,643. So you now had to, pay, you had to come out of pocket Instead of coming up with 57,000 more dollars, you need to come up with 1,600 and change each year in order to handle negative cash flow on that one property. Okay? Does everyone follow along with what I just said? Anyone lost? Okay. Now, it's not as bad as what I just said. You really do have negative cash flow, but you're going to have tax benefits, depreciation, to help offset that. Okay? So we're financing down payment, talked about that, but wait, depreciation. So gross depreciation. Where are my really geeky engineer guys? There we go. Okay, so everyone know how depreciation works, right? Basically, you buy a house. Let's call it a $300,000 property. You take off the value of the land. You cannot depreciate raw land, guys. Okay? So $300,000 property, let's say you, you say the land is worth 50K. Get rid of the 50K. Now you've got a building worth $250,000. That amount of money you can depreciate over 27 and a half years for residential real estate. So 250,000 divided by 27 and a half years, you get a number that looks a lot like $8,840. Now, depreciation works like this. I'm not a tax expert. Go talk to a tax accountant person, whatever you want to do. But this is how it works. Let's say I make 100 grand a year, and now I have almost $9,000 in depreciation. What I do at the end of the year is I say, okay, I made 100, I could depreciate nine grand, so really I'm only gonna pay tax on 91,000. I could take 9K, or whatever depreciation amount is, off of my income, and now I'm only paying tax on a lower amount. So really, I'm not paying tax on $9,000. So if I take my tax rate, and I multiply it by that 9K, I get the amount of money I'm saving in taxes, 1768 So really, instead of paying $1,768 at the end of the year in additional taxes, I get to pay that much less. Or you go down to your HR department, and you tell them you want to increase your exemptions, or whatever they call them, and you can actually see this monthly in your paycheck or bi-weekly in your paycheck, okay? So really, you're ending up not paying $1,768 in taxes. How much was the negative cash flow? 1,600 and change. But I just made 1,700 and change from tax benefit. So really, if you kind of include the negative cash flow and depreciation, do I have negative cash flow? No, I do not. So this shows you last year I didn't have any depreciation, this year I have 1768. Here it is showing the cash flow, negative 1643 and positive 1768. If you sum these, add them together, you get positive 125 for the year. So you have basically, squint really hard, break even cash flow when you take into account depreciation on the property. So even though you're negative, you're about break even. Patrick.
Schedule E with all my rental properties still on, and I made twenty grand in rental income. My depreciation comes off of that twenty grand in rental income. It's not off my W two income, correct? Which, if if you didn't have any deductions at all, would flow through to your income anyway. You would have made one hundred and twenty grand. So I guess it is coming off, right? I mean, it's the same net gain. I just I I, I know the forms that I look at, and I'm trying to figure out if there's. If that benefit is true, right? Because you have a Schedule E in there for your rental income shows. You're taking repairs and any other deductions that you have off your gross rental income. So I guess effectively hitting your top dollar is the is the monthly payments in state is that the same thing? Yes. On the rental? So you're talking about something different for me because I'm a real estate professional, so I think the rules are very different for me. But, but definitely talk to your tax advisor for that kind of nuanced stuff. But my understanding is that it works similarly to what I just described. Is that not right? Okay. So it's mathematically similar? Yeah, I think so, yeah. All right, cool. I'm glad. <laughs> so, and like I said, I'm not a tax guy. So basically, we have $125 positive when you take into account depreciation and the negative cash flow on the property. This just takes this slide and only shows the orange bands because the orange bands, when you do it later and you have like multiple years, it gets really crowded. And so I'm starting to show you just 125 net from cash flow and depreciation. Everyone follow? Yeah, Caleb. Yes. And if you don't take it, you lose it. So it's not like you're saving anything by not doing it. It does. And I think that's what he's talking about. So you're offsetting that. Okay. So income required. So last year you needed $3,850 in income, assuming no other debt and 45% debt to income in order to buy a first house. Now you need a little bit more, $4,570 for your household. So two people need to earn... $2,300 a month if you're both qualifying for the loan, okay? Or if you've got one person that could do it, you can alternate spouses. Everyone with me? Does that seem like a lot to anybody? Okay, good. All right, cool. So here's the infographic summary. Last year we bought one. This year we bought one 5% down, and we have one that now has a tenant buyer in it. That's the greenhouse. Cash account balance at the end of the year, we had 140 last year. This year we have 265 because we had some tax benefits. All right, year three, more nomads to keep renting. Do we have any houses to sell? No. Find new tenant buyer. We're going to hold out for another 5% down from a different tie. And Ty's going to come in and buy our second house, put a, put a lease option on it. We're going to buy our next one with 5% down. We don't have enough for 20% down. We're going to collect any lease option fees. We don't have any, so nothing to do. And we're going to collect rents on two rental properties now from Nomad. Everyone with me? Cool. So we had 3,000 at the beginning of year one. About 140 in the year two, 200 and something dollars in the beginning of year three. We have one 1% down home that we own, one 5% down home that we own. At the beginning of the year, we own two properties. Property values are going up 3%. They're now worth 303. See how the slides go a little faster now? Making up time. After holding out for 5% option fee from a, a, another tie, we have enough to put 5% down to purchase the next Nomad. We do not have enough to buy any 20% down properties yet. We're going to do that later. So basically, here's what appreciation was. 85.80 in year one, 88.37 times two properties in year two, 
Now we've got three properties. Each one is 9103 for a total of $27,000 in appreciation that year. Everyone follow. See how it's getting complicated? Debt pay down, 4568 in year one, 4515 and 4778 in year two, and then you have three in year three, 4722, 4650, and almost five grand for a total of 14,000 in low change. That's how much debt you're paying down on three properties in year three. Cash flow, we had negative 1643 last year on the first property. This year we have negative 1176, plus on the second property we have negative 976. This again is before depreciation. So now when we look at depreciation, you got to depreciate the property for 8840 last year, one for 9105, this, that's this year's, and 8840 was the same property from last year. The total depreciation gross is 17,945 or about $18,000. This is the cash flow from depreciation. It's about 3589 total for the two of them. Everyone with me? This is the summary again. We had negative almost $1,200 in cash flow, negative $1,000 in cash flow, but we had 1821 in depreciation and 1776, 1768 in depreciation. So you add all these together, you have 1437 positive from the cash flow and the depreciation. Everyone with me? Okay. Yeah. No, because you're buying a more expensive property and then you're dividing, you're taking out the value of the land, you're taking that new, more expensive property, you're dividing that by 27 and a half years. But the depreciation from the property last year is the same as it was last year. That number, once it gets locked in, it's static until year 28. And you, until year 28. Yeah. No. Yep. So this one's the same as this. These two are the same. Year two, year, two, year three. Everyone with me? Cool. So this is just that same orange bar simplified. So a little bit amount of money. I don't know what that is, a hundred and something dollars. And then this is 1437 for year two net between cash flow and depreciation. How much money did you need in order to do this? $5,238 per month, assuming no other debt between the entire household. Anyone qualifying for the loan together? Okay, summary, year three, bought another 5% Nomad property. Now we have two people like Ty lease optioning the properties that we used to live in. Everyone follow? All right, here we go. Cash flow is improving. We had 265 at the end of last year. This year we have 1702 in the bank account. Not quite enough to buy a 20% down property. Year four, more nomads and keep renting. Nothing to sell, hold out for the third, buy a fourth nomad property, not enough down for 20%, so we're not getting 20% lease option fee. Now we have three rentals from previous nomads. So we started off with three grand, had a little bit of cash flow at the end of year, or at the beginning of year four, 1702. We now own one 1% down property, one 5% down property from year two, one 5% down property from year three, and no 20% down properties. We have a total of three homes at the beginning of the year. Nothing tricky so far, correct? Okay. This, I almost feel like a magician where I'm like pulling up my sleeves. I'm like, look, there's nothing up my sleeves. We're magically going to have millions of dollars here in a moment. So, all right, cool. Values of homes. 312 is what they're worth now and some change. After holding out for a third tie with 5% down, we're not going to have enough to buy a 20% down, but we'll have enough to buy another Nomad property. So appreciation, we now have four properties. Add all of them up, $37,000 from appreciation that year. We have four properties we're paying down debt for. Add them all up, $19,000 in debt that we paid down in that year. We have cash, negative cash flow. 
negative 695, negative 1005, negative 495. So we have three that are rented. All of them have negative cash flow. It's the sum of all those. Then we have depreciation. This is 27,324, 5,465 using our tax rate to find out how much tax savings we have from it. And so we add up the negative cash flows, negative 2,195, add up all the depreciations, 5,465. We have a net positive of $3,000 and change. Everybody with me? All right, moving through. So this is the, basically the, the orange line from before. Uh, 3,270 was the total. And then how much money? $5,850 is how much you need to be making as a household in year four. Is that scaring anybody away? This is probably one of the scarier things. If you're buying $300,000 houses, for some families, it's getting harder and harder to hit these numbers, right? Do you see if that's reasonable? All right, so what do we do? Year four, bought another 5% down. Now we have three rentals. Uh-oh. Here's the money, $4,972 in your bank account. Nothing really impressive. You started off with three grand, now you got five grand in your bank account, but you own four properties. Here's where the magic happens. First lease option, tenant buyer closes. So Ty decides, I'm getting a loan, I'm buying the house from you on January 1st. We sell the original 1% down property. We hold out for the fourth tenant buyer, so we get Ty's brother to get our next property, the one we were living in, he's gonna put 5% down and buy that. We're gonna buy our fifth Nomad property. We do not have enough yet to buy 20% down. So we're not going to get any 20% down lease option fees. We've got three rentals from previous nomads. Okay, here's the money we started at the beginning of the year. We have about 5K in the bank account at the beginning of year five. We own one 1% down program. That's the one we're going to sell. We have one, two, three additional 5% down properties for a total of four that we own right now at the beginning of the year. Property values are worth 321, 896. Now let's look at the sale. So Ty, this is what just happened. You bought a property. You bought it from us for $321,896. Pay off the remaining mortgage. We owe $258,104 on that mortgage that we got that we put 1% down on. The option fee we already received, you already gave us $15,000 when you moved in. So that's getting removed from our profit. We're not getting profit on that twice. We paid taxes on it. Taxes were at 15% plus uh, uh, recaptured depreciation. And that was a total of $10,688. I will tell you, this slide has a small math error on it. I'm going to show you the correct one, I think, right after this. Down payment back. So we got the $2,860 that we gave to Patrick. Not really, but we gave to Patrick as our 1% down payment when we bought the house. Make sense? We gave it to the lender. What's that? That's true. So it's better than what we're telling you. So Patrick was saying, technically, with the particular loan program where it's 1% down, you really are pretending we're putting 3% down. The lender is actually crediting you 2%. So it's better than what I'm showing on here, but it's six grand. That grant doesn't have to be paid back. No, it's a grant. Right? Grant. Yeah. So is the tax on profit, is that considered capital um, uh, gains? So long-term capital gains at 15% plus 25% recapture of the part that was depreciated. No. Well, if you stay there for two out of the last five, then you wouldn't have to necessarily pay for that. But we're not doing that model. Right. Yeah. But then, because then if you do the next one, you still have to pay tax on that, right? Because you can only do that once every so many times, right? You can't just do it. You can't consecutively live two, two years and keep doing that, can you? Uh, yeah, you can? Yeah, I think right now you can, I think. Hmm. 
Well, you realize, too, that it's two years out of last five, but if it takes you three years in order to get the option on it and close out, you could be beyond that time period, too. But you have to live in it for two years. Two years out of last five. Yep, that's my understanding of the law, too. Okay. We're, so if you, like, time things perfectly, could it get a little better? Sure. We're not modeling that. We're not assuming that you have to do that. We're paying taxes on it. So I think it's more conservative to look at the numbers this way and realize that you might be able to make it better if you kind of tweak some little things. Yeah, Karen. No, no, you're, we're not doing 1031 exchanges. We're actually paying the tax. We can do whatever we want with that money at that time. And we're opting after we pay taxes to buy new properties. Yep. But you're paying full 15% cap gain taxes on it. Long-term cap gains. Every single property. Yep. I've tried to make it pretty conservative to do that math that way. Yep. And doing depreciation recapture. Mm -hmm. Okay. So taxes on profit and recapture depreciation. Down payment back. Uh, 2860 so we're getting that money back there. So the total profit on the deal is 35515 That's what's added to our bank account, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's added to bank account. It's 38375 because it's this and this back. The profit with the option fee, if you add back in that you already got 15K of your profit, is that 50244 How many people remember what I was using when I did the math by hand at the beginning for the profit? I think it was 45 So turns out it's more. I was being conservative when I did that math. Okay? All right, cool. So, total profit, 50, 65 with the option fee or whatever it is. Oh, probably with the option fee, it's 50, rather. Profit was 35. And then add it to the bank account, we get 38, 375. The new bank account balance is now 43, 346. So, you went from $3,000 in year one to 40 something grand and owning four rental properties. Crazy. Okay, cool. So, there is a math error in how I was doing recapture depreciation. It has since been corrected on the website, and so this is actually a screenshot from the website. It was sold for 321, 321, uh, paid off the mortgage 258,104, 258,104. Uh, you got your option feedback 14,729, taxes on profit 5,384. This included recaptured depreciation. I broke it out, so the 5,384 is actually your taxes, and recaptured depreciation was 6,630. It was a little bit more, is what it worked out to be. So the profit was 3515. The real profit's 34188 So it's off by about a grand if you do it like exactly by the book with recaptured depreciation. I had a math error before. I will tell you, when you look at the numbers, it didn't matter. Okay? But I wanted to point out that there was an error, but it's close enough. It's within 1000 bucks. Does everyone agree? Is that a problem for anybody? Anyone's like, oh, no, James, you're off by $1,000. I'm out of here. Okay. All right, cool. So we had the profit of 34188 and that's with the updated recaptured depreciation calculation that I was doing wrong. Okay, buy the Nomad property, then 20% down. We don't, uh, we don't have to hold out to find someone 5% down now because we got 40-something thousand dollars in the bank. We can just go buy the property and wait to put someone like Ty in. So this now solves the timing issue a little bit. Okay, now you don't have to wait anymore. Um, with 5% option fee, we have more than enough 5% down to purchase the next Nomad property. We do not have enough to buy a 20% down. Okay, so we don't have enough to do that yet. That's coming. Now we own... One, two, three, four properties, because we sold one. We would have had five. We only have four now. So we appreciated 38627 in that year. Paid down debt of $20,000 in that year. You have negative cash flow, 510. We have one is actually $1, so almost break even. Then you have 510 and 1035. So we have three that are rented, one we're living in. So a total of negative 1545 in cash flow. The depreciation, 
28,143 on the three properties that we own. So 5,629 in tax benefits. So now we have negative 1545 plus 5,630 in depreciation. So we're a net positive of four grand on the three rental properties we still own. Everybody with me? Okay. So the total amount, 4,084, that's the net positive cash flow after depreciation and cash flow. The amount of money you need to make, 58.93 per month to buy the next property. Okay? Infographic summary. We bought a 5% down property. We have three tenant buyers in there, and the red one is we sold one. That's what the infographic means. And for those that have Eddie, you want to show your book? At the front of the page, that's what that infographic is. It summarizes what happens each year. So we're going to get down to year 22 or whatever that is on there. But that's what that means. 20 years? Okay, so you'll see 20. I think I go to 22 in the presentation. Okay. So your cash account balance at the end of the year is $47,430. A lot bigger than the small amounts we had before. Everybody follow. This is like the, how did he do it, right? Everyone sees how I got there. Even though it seems like, oh my gosh, it's not believable. It's not, nothing tricky, it's just simple math. Okay, cool. Year six, first 20% down purchase. So, we sell our first 5% down house. Last year we sold our first 1% down. This year we're selling our first 5%. We hold out for a fifth version of tie that has 5% down. Uh, buy Nomad property and then 20% down, so we're gonna buy another Nomad property with 5%. We're gonna buy our first 20% down property. We'll have enough this year at the end of the sale. We're gonna collect the lease option fee and the 20% down. Someone else, when I taught this before, pointed out that you get rebates when you buy. You go put 20% down, but as soon as you close on it and you put your next tenant buyer in, you get 5% back. So really, you're only having to put 15% down net, because you're getting it back immediately, okay? You still need 20% up front. Collect rents on properties that are rented. We got three rentals from previous nomads and our first 20% down property. I'm gonna show you the difference. Cash flow is significantly different. So at the beginning of the year, we had 47,000 and change. We owned no more 1% down. We sold that off last year. We have one, two, three, four, 5% downs and none 20% downs. No 20% downs starting right now. So we have four homes at the beginning of the year. Property values are worth 331,552. We sold the 5% down property, Ty version two, Ty's brother. Sold it for 331, paid off a mortgage at 255. Option fee already received. We got 15K from him and a little change before. Taxes on profit, that 11,000 with the depreciation recapture. Again, this is off by about 1,000, just so you know. $14,000 is the payback of the down payment. So we made a profit of 35,537. It's really like 34,500 bucks. So the profit with the option fee is like 50 grand. Added to the bank account, 50,266. New bank balance, 97,969. We got enough for 20% down payment. Everyone follow what I just did. Sweet. Okay, we don't, have it, we don't have to hold out for the 5% down. No more timing issues, we can go buy it. We got enough money. With 5% option fee, we have more than enough to put 5% to purchase the next one. We also have enough to buy our first 20% down. The account balance was 96 grand. The down payment would be $66,000 for a 20% down property at this point. We got it. We now bought two houses this year. Pause for dramatic effect. We bought two houses this year. One we moved into, we put 5% down. The other one we did not move into, we put 20% down. But we bought two. We're picking up speed. 
You see that? We're really increasing our holdings. We've now added two properties to our portfolio. Okay, so appreciation. One, two, three, four, five properties that we own, total of almost 50 grand, 49 and high change. Debt pay down, one, two, three, four, five, a total of about $25,000 we're paying down the debt. Now here's where cash flow gets interesting. So we have negative 1,067 cash flow on one of them, negative 525 on another one, but we have positive 1,400 on another and positive $1 on another, okay? So negative 1,591 is the total of all the negatives and positive 1,401 or so is the positive on the top end. 1,400 must have rounded down, okay? So why are we getting 1,400 on this one? 20% down. It's that difference between financing your down payment because you only put 5% or 1% down and putting a full 20% down, you would have had positive cash flow. Just out of curiosity, what's 1,400 divided by 66,000 or whatever the number was? 66. Anyone do 1,400 divided by uh, 66,000? Anyone? Calculator people? I'm kind of curious what cash on cash was. So this is a 2% cash on cash return property. Pretty interesting, right? It's not an amazing property. It's like one that you can find and reasonably expect to get 2% down on. So we're not trying to set the bar really, really high. Okay. So we talked about cash flow. Anyone have questions on the cash flow stuff? Sweet. So gross depreciation, one, two, three, four properties that are rented and one that's not rented, 39236 And then $7,848 is the... Uh, tax benefit from depreciation. So here's the sum. Remember I told you these were going to get complicated? So $1,591 in negative cash flow and $9,248 in positive cash flow and depreciation. So a total of $7,656 total net positive between cash flow and depreciation, which is what this number is here, 7656. Kind of increasing. That's what we want to see. All right, so how much money do you need in order to buy the next property? $6,298 is what you need to be making in order to buy the next one, okay? Between two people. So that's um, $3,000 and change a month. So about $37,000 a year, $36,000 a year, somewhere around there per person. All right, so here's the infographic. Bought another 5% down. We have three with tenant buyers in there. We sold one and we bought a 20% down. That's the yellow one. Cash balance at the end of the year, 55619 is what we had at the end of the year. All right, fast forward to year 10. You didn't think I was going to go through each year, right? Aren't you happy? We're good on time. So fast forward to year 10. We're going to sell two and buy three 20% down properties in year 10. So let's take a look. Sell houses. We're going to sell a 5% down, and we're going to sell a 20% down. So Ty's cousin put down 5% option fee on a 20% down property four years ago. Today, he's buying the property. Okay, we're gonna see that money come back in. We're gonna find a new tenant buyer on the previous one we lived in. We're gonna buy a new Nomad property and we're gonna buy three 20% down properties this year. Three of them. Collect lease option fees on the new 20% down and collect rents on the properties that are all rented. So here's the money we had. In year six, we had 47. Year seven, we had 55. Year eight, we had 68. Year nine, we had 85. In year 10, we started off the year with $108,000 in cash in the bank. How much did we start off with? 3,000. So 3,000 by year 10, we have, I'll show you the number of properties in a minute, but we also have $108,000 in cash in the bank, in addition to a bunch of rental properties. 
How many do we own? Well, we have one that we bought in year six, one that we bought in year seven, one that we bought in year eight, one that we bought in year nine for 5% down. So that's four. We have one that we bought in year six, one that we bought in year seven, one that we bought in year eight, and one that we bought in year nine with 20% down. So we have a total of eight properties at the beginning of the year. Crazy. Okay, so the properties are worth 373, 165 now. I'm gonna keep selling one of these a year at this point of the 5% down ones, plus we're now gonna sell a 20% down property. So this one's sold for 373, pay off the mortgage of 241. Why is the mortgage so low? We paid it down, but what else? We put 20% down, so we owed less to begin with. The option fee we already collected, we got a $17,000 option fee on that one. Taxes on the profit, 12391 dollars The down payment back, $66,000 back because that's how much we put down to begin with. We get a big chunk of money back. So our profit on that one, $35,600. Profit with the option fee, $52,675. Added to the bank account at closing is like this amount plus this amount, plus probably the... Mm, 9101. Yeah, so it's these two. So $101,000 added to the bank account. The new bank account balance before we buy stuff is 266. That's crazy. All right, so we don't have enough. We have enough to hold out. We don't need to wait for, you know, Jeff to find someone to buy the property beforehand. 5% option. We have more than enough. Put 5% down. We also have enough to buy three more 20% down properties. The account balance is 266. The down payment for each of those is about 75k, and we've got it. We bought four houses this year, one Nomad, and three 20% down. So now we have appreciation on one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten properties for $111,000 that year in appreciation alone. We have debt pay down on one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten properties. We paid off $52,000 and change in debt that year alone. Remember I said that that was as close to a guaranteed return as you can get? You put $3,000 in on year one. By year 10, you're actually paying off $52,000 a year in debt. That's like the closest to guaranteed as you can get. So it's like almost a guaranteed return of 52 grand on a $3,000 investment 10 years ago. It's crazy. Cash flow on the property, you have a couple negatives. Negative 1791 total, and you have some positives, 1253. So you have the depreciation, it's almost 100 grand in gross depreciation, almost $20,000 in net depreciation after taxes. So your total amount of cash flow, when you take into account depreciation, and your negative cash flow and positive cash flow is $30,743. What would be the numbers for um, like collecting rent versus uh, like your negative cash flow? Is that basically what you get rent per month minus mortgage payment? No, there's a vacancy number in there. There is uh, maintenance, 12% maintenance reserve in there. There is taxes and insurance in there. There's the mortgage payment in there. If you had property management put in, it would be in there too. Um, the HOA is in there. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's actually a real number. It's like a true net operating income number. Yeah, good question though. Okay, so 30743 is what you're seeing in year 10 from that stuff. How much money did you need to make? So it increased, I think we left, left off, it's year 6, 6,300, 6,600, 6,900, 7,000, almost 71, and 7,800. So by year 10, you need to be making $7,800 a month net, not net, gross, between two people, if you're doing, you and your spouse, um, in order to make that work. Those are the numbers. It does. It takes into account any positive cash flow or negative cash flow you have in your rental properties. 
because I'm using 75% of the gross rent you're collecting in order to offset those so that it shows you. Because if you actually go to G-Town, you run these numbers, and you're buying like a you know, $150,000 or $180,000 duplex, and you're getting really good rent on it, your actual, the, the amount of money you need to make can actually go to zero or negative. So you actually can support it completely with rental property. Okay? And that's what I'm using. Okay. So, but if you had a property for four years, I'm using a two-year rental history on my Schedule E for income, which I think your income figure is high, and I appreciate that you're being conservative, but you're probably going to have positive cash flow or break-even cash flow on all of these properties. You should, right, on paper. So they should almost all negate themselves on paper for you from a debt income standpoint. And remember, with this model, we're using new construction houses, is what we're... And they're probably not going to have great rates. And they're not going to have 12% per year maintenance. You're probably even better off than what we're saying. I think your reserve figure is high, which is great. I agree. Being conservative, but that's like a name player. If you want to be as conservative as possible. That's right. All right, ready? Here we go. So here's the infographic. In year 10, bought one house where we owner-occupy, nomad property. Three previous tenant buyers from these. We're selling two, we have uh, three 20% down properties, and we bought three more 20% down properties that year. So the total that we own is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Everyone follow? Okay. Here's your cash account balance. In year 10, you have $130,000 in the bank in cash, starting with three grand. Fast forward to year 13. We're going to now stop moving into nomad properties. Almost thought I had a typo. So we're no longer moving in by year 13. Sell a 5% down and 20% down to a tenant buyer, so we're now selling two, our 5% and our 20% down, holding out for the tenant buyer in the previous one that we did. We're stopping buying Nomad properties at 5% down, we're not doing that anymore. Buy four 20% down properties, we have enough to do that. Collect lease option fee for the 20% downs, and we've got a number of rentals now we're gonna collect rent on. So the cash balance at the beginning of the year, 147 and change or whatever it was. Homes owned at the start of year 13, one, two, three, four, 5% down properties. From 20% down ones, one from year 9, three from year 10, three from year 11, three from year 12. So we have a total of 14 homes at the start of the year. Property values are 407 and change. Clean out, close out lease options. Tenant buyers sold one 5% down, sold one 20% down. The account balance is approximately $320,000 after the sales, but before collecting lease option fees. So we don't buy any more Nomad properties. We're not moving in anymore. We have enough to buy four more 20% down properties. Account balance was 357. Down payment required for each is 81,000 and change. So we bought four all 20% downs. We're no longer moving in. 
Did I mention that a couple times? So appreciation. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 properties now. Appreciation that year was 195000 Debt pay down. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. I think I kind of right. $89,000 in debt pay down. Cash flow, you had a couple negative ones, negative 2,000, but we're buying the majority of 20% down properties now, so we have 32,000 and change positive per year. Your depreciation was almost 38 after taxes, so the net between depreciation and positive cash flow is almost 69 grand per year now uh, in year 13. Kind of cool. And that's what that says. So the income you need right now, because you're putting 20% down and you have a lot of positive cash flow, 39.15. Yeah. So that year, is that assuming that you're now in the portfolio loan? Have to, or you'd be splitting them. Okay. Or you're alternating back and forth, right? I cut everyone off at 20. But yeah, you're right. And you got portfolio loan issues to deal with at this point. Is this assuming you're still managing all these properties yourself? You can go ahead and add management fee, but the numbers do not take into account management costs. Okay. So you can go ahead and add it whenever you want. You can add it from day one, okay. but you don't need to. And then we don't model it that way. Sure. You could argue that. Totally. Yep. I'm trying to be conservative. You guys can run numbers however you want. Yeah. So, I mean, sometimes we buy houses in groups, right? We buy four houses at a time. And you could do it in this case, right? You just go to a new construction place, say, I want to buy four houses with you right now. But four under contract, you buy them, you maybe get a little discount or a little bonus on something, and you buy four. It's easy to do. Independently, the most I've done is six independent single-family homes in six weeks. And that was hauling ass and doing a lot of stuff. It was me by myself buying six houses in six weeks. Yeah. It's pain in the butt, but it can be done. All right, so infographic summary. By year 13, no more moving in, so there's no more orange house. Three that you have previous ties in there doing that. You sold two, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten that are 20% down, they have 10 buyers in there, and you bought four more. Okay? At the end of the year, 202,710 in your, in your bank account. Fast forward to year 22, equilibrium. This is like the last kind of section, and I'm good on time. So this is what happens in year 22. You sell, in a typical year, I mean, they kind of rotate through this. You sell one, two, three, four, five, six, seven to four houses, you know, four to seven, depending on what year it is and whether, you're, whether they cash you out. Then you're buying replacements for those properties. So in the years you actually sold seven, you're buying seven. In the years that you sold four, you're buying four to replace them. And so other than that, you would just have these properties. So in years 22, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, you sold. You own 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, that you have 20% down, 10 buyers in. And then you have another seven that you're buying that year. This is sort of equilibrium, where you're just kind of keeping your portfolio with 20 properties. You have cash flow on all these of 64,857. And something magical happens because you're putting 20% down on all these, you no longer have negative cash flow. Okay? So total cash flow with depreciation is 128,000 and change. That's what that shows on there um, between those two. So when you sell a 20% down property, we sold it for 532, paid off the remaining mortgage at 344. We had already received an option fee of $24,000. 
Taxes on the profit were 17 and high change. Down payment back of 94,000. So your profit, even toward the end, is about 50 grand. Kind of what we were modeling before. 75,000 when you include the option fee. And so you add back to your bank account the down payment and the profit of 145. And you're selling between four and six or four and seven of these per year, right? Because you're popping them out. You've got these things kind of always turning. So you're making these pops every four or five of these year, four or five, six or seven of these year profit. No, because we're not paying commissions. So there's no real estate agent involved. Because when I go to Ty and so I say Ty, that's exactly right. All of these are tenant buyers. Okay. Yep. yep. So there's no commissions. You're paying commissions when you buy, but it's already baked into the price. Yep. So any questions on this? You understand that you're getting four, so you're getting at least 200,000 in profit to, if you do seven of them, $350,000 in profit every year when you're selling these. You're being paid to do this work. Okay? In that option, go back to that scheme that at 6% on 500, you're, you're going to lose 30 grand if you sell it for So part of, right? Mm -hmm. Conservatively, it looks like. Yep. And so now your profit's 20 grand. Yep. A lot less. Doing the, the lease option is a, is a huge factor in the profitability. Totally agree. You're trading that work mm -hmm. to do it. All right, so cash account balance in year 22. The cash port of your portfolio is 3.2 million, okay? Because it just grows. So 3.2 million in 22, that's cash in the bank. It's not counting at least 20% equity in all 20 of the 500K-ish properties you have. So 20% of 500, that's the amount you put down. So that's about $100,000 times 20. If I'm not mistaken, my math is right, that's about 2 million by itself. So you have at least 2 million in equity and 3.2 million in the bank. And the question I ask, at least I think I ask, is where else can you invest $3,000 and get this? Right? So for the people that come in, they're like, you know, seems like a lot of work, James. Sure, a lot of work. Totally agree. So go take your $3,000 and invest in the stock market and see if you get this. Right? That's the kind of pitch. So how much money do you need to make in order to do it? Kind of peaks out in year 12. It looks like that's like, I don't know, 8,000 and high change per month is what you need to make in year 12 in order to do it. But once you get past that kind of hurdle, the income required is much lower. You're starting to see almost all positive cash flow properties. Yeah. Here's the rental. Here's the positive cash flow. Where do you want to know what number? Oh, it doesn't ever hit 8,000 for this because you have to make that from a job. Yeah, you need to be making that from a job. Yeah, it doesn't come from the cash flow from the properties. It already takes into account the cash flow from the properties. That's why it goes down after a while. Yeah. Okay. So gross monthly income required goes down. So you only really have to peak out right there. So what's killing your dreams? So what about this model was not believable for you? What will be hard for you? What will prevent you from acting? And what's your alternative if you don't do this? So here are some of the things I thought of. Down payment. Is there anyone who can't come up with 3K down or get it gifted to you? Okay, you could hustle. And if you want to go to G-Town, you can go, or you want to go do USDA and do nothing down, you can make it happen with a USDA nothing down loan. Or if you're a veteran, thank you for your service, you can get a nothing down VA loan. In fact, the interest rate in a VA loan is a little bit better. Yeah, okay, so you can make it work better. So down payment, that's usually a complaint I get. I just showed you how to do the whole model with three grand. And I, could t I tell you, you could do it with nothing down. Finding properties. Is it possible to find these types of properties in our current market? 
Yeah, they're brand new construction. You can go buy a 10 of them right now. Qualifying for financing, income, credit, or something else. It's a legitimate concern. If you don't have the income, it's probably gonna be hard for you to qualify for the loan. And this does rely on your ability to get loans. That is no doubt about that. Getting rents. We kind of had the discussion about, you think my rent's a little high? There's, there's a two hour class I did on how to improve cash flow. And I think, how many people came to my cash flow explosion class? So having come to my cash flow explosion class, do you think it's possible to get $100 more rent than you probably thought you could from just all those different ideas we had? Yeah, I think it's pretty easy to do. Okay, plus you're doing lease options on the property and you're probably getting a slightly above market rent on those too. Work or effort involved. This is definitely a labor intensive model. This is not a passive, I just go buy rental properties and I just hold on to them. Very different. This is an active, I'm hustling, trading my time in exchange for not having to come up with as much down payment. Okay, definitely gotta do that. Moving each year, that's the biggest one I get, right? Patrick threw his wife under the bus, she's not willing to move. I get it, I get it. You know, it's, it's definitely hard to do that. But maybe you sit down and say, okay, let's do a retirement planning day, honey. <laughs> okay, how much of our income do you wanna set aside for retirement so that we can have whatever amount we need in 15, 20, 30 years, whatever it is that we need to get to. So we sit down and we say, okay, in order to get to $3 million, that means we need to save, I'm making up this number up, you know, $5,000 per month and get an 8% return in the stock market. Do we have $5,000 per month sitting around somewhere? Probably not, okay? So this is the way to get there with just three grand, okay? So you have to convince them that you can either do this work and move every year or you can eat cat food when we're retired. <laughs> what would you like to do? Yeah, Ty. So I think the only thing that I would have a question is like typically how hard is it to find a tenant buyer? So Patrick, is it hard to find a tenant buyer? I know you already asked it, but I'm I don't know. Oh, you're done? Is this I mean do you have do you advertise? Yes. You do, you put them on Craigslist. Well, you can't say I'm looking for an African-American male that's between age 20 and 25. You can, you can discriminate against green. So if they have money or don't have money and that you're looking for a specific tenant buyer versus a renter, yes. Yep. Okay, so getting on to this. So moving each year, we talked about that. The speed of the model. I mean, it does take time. In year two, are you a millionaire? Year five? Are you probably better off in year five than you would be if you took $3,000 and put it in the stock market? I think so. So it does, does go there, but it takes some time to do it. It takes some effort. Um, market correction. So what happens if you do this and the market corrects like five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now? Well, then you're buying properties at a discount. You're getting deals on the properties you're buying. So if you have a long-term horizon, you acquire 10, 15, 20 rental properties and the market corrects, okay, now stuff's on sale. You know, I go ahead and restart, buy more. Fear, I think that came up quite a bit tonight, right? This fear of the model. I kind of, I went really slow, right? To try to explain everything, make sure you understand the numbers. And some of you were kind of napping back there because it's hot in a room and you know, the numbers kind of get repetitive over time, but I want to make sure you understand everything because understanding helps to alleviate fear, okay? Is there anything else? What's preventing you from doing it? What are the challenges? Is, is the tenant still an option buyer? Like, is that 
picking a renter out of Craigslist who's just going to rent your house and may stop paying at some point, and now you're on the hook for down for the monthly insurance while they're fixing your house. Yeah, I think that is a factor, but really for this particular model, the biggest benefit of looking for a tenant buyer is you're going to get the option fee so that you can use that for a down payment. Because you need that until like you're... That's the traditional plain vanilla nomad model. Right. Mm -hmm. And you stop buying at year 10. In that case, I guess it doesn't matter if your tenants are in these options because you're not selling to them. You're agreeing to build tenants. Yep. That's plain vanilla. That's less work. That's where we started. This is like the most aggressive version of the nomad model you can do. No, I think, it, I think this is the most aggressive version. I think it's the maximum way to do it because you're basically taking the, you're taking the money, the equity out of the property and trying to reinvest it in two up front, right? So you, as quickly as you can get the money out of the property and buy more than one property at, with those proceeds, you're actually speeding things up. So you're multiplying it faster by doing it quicker is kind of my thought. Um, and you limit your, the longer you hold the property, the more chance you have of getting hit with capex, capital expenses, new roofs, new flooring, new kitchens, new stuff like that. So really by churning the properties very quickly, you're limiting your exposure to that. The chance of having a hot water heater or a furnace or a roof or something else go out while you own the property is lower if you're picking properties that have really long capex schedules, like all that stuff has been done when you purchase them. And that's part of your selection process. One of the reasons why I like new construction. The thing I don't like about new construction is sometimes you got to finance in all the extra stuff like backyards and refrigerators and all that other stuff like that. And that's the downside of new construction, but I still think that's worth doing. Window coverings, yep. All the things like that. But they're all brand new properties too. Yeah, and I think if you do it early enough, I think you can overcome the time frame planning because we're not like deciding on Sunday morning, okay, we're ready to buy. We know our time frame. We got a year to plan. So you can go to a builder early, three months like in when you own the property. You can say, what are you going to have in nine months from now? When do I need to be here in order to get something that's going to be built out on this date or as close to this date as possible? And I think, and I'm not speaking for Patrick, but I think if you were five days or ten days early closing on your one-year loan, I don't think most people are going to balk at that. Yeah. If you start doing it consistently, you know, month 10 or 11, I think they'll balk at that. But if you happen to be a couple days early on a year, I don't think anyone's going to scream kind of foul on that one. Any other questions? 168 slides, 158 slides in two hours. That's pretty good. Yes? In this model, you don't. In this model, you don't, right? But you could do whatever you want. You now have whatever the number was here. You've got $3.2 million in cash here, right? So sure, you can go take 20% down and go buy an Aplex or whatever you want to do to kind of diversify out. Totally welcome to do that. There are some risks of multifamily above five units, right? Because most of those loans have balloons on them. 
And so you have an interest rate risk, and you have a kind of the loan being called due risk. There are some loans out there for commercial properties that are full amortizing, you know, 30-year whatever loans, but they're extremely rare um, and harder to get and unusual. Oh, you could. Yeah, sure. But you want to be leveraged. Well, maybe you don't want to be leveraged. Maybe you do want to actually diversify and have it all as cash flow. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think the, the model in general is single family homes and churn them out with lease option exits. I think that's probably the big one. So, Cool. Thank you all for coming. I appreciate it. I will see you all next week or whenever. <laughs>